this whole idea of sin is kind of outdated, isn't it? I mean, who wants to talk about sin? Some of people come to church. They want to hear things to, to feel good about themselves. Nobody wants to hear about sin. And we live in a world where people don't talk about it too much. We will blame other things. Uh, the society's, you know, uh, problems in this world, and we admit there are, but uh, they're, they're caused by society, right? Or just systems in this world that are, that are not correct or uh, sometimes we blame everything on just uh, maybe psychological problems, and everything is caused by that. Or we just call them, you know, mistakes or bad choices. But the Bible teaches that sin is, is real, that it is not an illusion, uh, that it is not an idea that humans just made up. It's not something that we do to just guilt trip, guilt trip other people or ourselves or to, to manipulate different people, as some people claim. But as we look at Scripture, we look at this passage that we're going to be seeing, that is the Word of God. We're going to see that definitely is saying that sin is real, sin is in our hearts, and it is a problem, a deep problem, that needs a solution for this deep problem. And the fact that sin is real, we have this message, I'll say, in a sense, this is actually good news. Because each of us knows deep down, even though we try to deny it, we know deep down that our sin is real. And I believe we want a better solution than just pretending it's not there. That denying sin does not actually take away the, the guilt and, and the, the dirtiness, the defilement of sin that we feel in our hearts. That we need instead something else that actually can. So let's look at 1 John. We're going to be looking at Verse, chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. Let us read these here together. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This is the word of the Lord that we are looking at here today. So I'm going to give three basic points as we walk through this. And the first, I'm going to explain where I get this from, is that sin breaks fellowship with God. And it does. We look at the first few verses here and we see that this is something that happens. And there's a foundational truth that, uh, that uh, John starts with here uh, that he has in, uh, in verse 5. And other things flow from this. And he says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. So John is saying, I did not make this up. I am not inventing this truth. This is not something new. This is something that, uh, this is, we have been consistent on this. And even you look back through the whole Old Testament, this is that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. That's a profound truth. And as I've been just thinking about that, meditating on that, especially this week, 
just that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. We think, well, what does this mean? In what way is God light? You know, he causes photosynthesis and causes the plants to grow. Well, in a sense, yeah, that's true. He does cause light, life. He is um, the giver of truth. Life is associated with truth. And Jesus even said, you know, I am the light. Well, I think the way that John is using this here and talking about and saying God is light, um, which, by the way, there's like three uh, statements like that in Scripture that talk about what God like, is in his essence. Uh, that say God is and then something. God is, we hear light, God is holy, and uh, God is love. And that's also in First John. And of course, the scriptures tell us all kinds of other things that describe what God is like. like. But I think here what it's getting at, that God is light, not that light is God. Okay, God is not beaming down here from uh, uh, the LEDs, you know, above us. Uh, but God is like light in that God is of absolute moral purity. I think we get that because we read this in context and it's, it's contrasted with darkness. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And as we read on, it talks about to walk into darkness. That's walking in sin, walking in evil. So this is saying that God is a God, he is a being of, of pure moral righteousness, pure goodness, pure holiness, uh, he is the exact opposite of darkness, of evil, of immorality. And there's not even a little tiny bit of that that is in God. Uh, we tend to be okay with certain defilements, but God is not like that at all. Um, I saw somebody at one point had like uh, just the yin-yang. And maybe you've seen this uh, from you know, Eastern religions that have the yin-yang. And it's symbolizes that there's two opposing, you know, forces. There's good and bad, and they're locked into conflict with each other. And we believe, no, God, you know, pre-existed, you know, everything and perfectly good. Uh, but also, I don't, you ever notice in, when you see the yin-yang symbol, often there's the black dot and there's the white dot as well. And is that just an artistic thing? Uh, which, by the way, if you want to wear the yin-yang as jewelry, you should think about what this is actually symbolizing. Uh, that there's this universe where there's always been evil and always been good, but the dots that are in there are meant to communicate that even in the good, there's a little bit of bad. And even in the bad, there's a little bit of good. And I realize this is completely different than what the Bible is telling us in this verse. This verse is telling us that in God, there is no darkness at all. There's not some little spot of darkness. There's not some little bit of shadow that is in him. God is completely holy, completely good, completely righteous all the way through. And that's a good thing. And we don't want to have a God to, to try and worship that is, that is defiled, that's not 100% pure and, and good. Of course, we're going to see there's a problem because we realize as we look in our hearts, we're not the same way. So the message, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And then, walking through this, verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now, um, if you have your bulletin and you have that, I have the passage printed out for you. And perhaps you'd like to do this. You don't have to, and I'm not going to collect homework assignments. Uh, but this is the first. Sometimes it's good to take time to just observe things. And sometimes you write in your, your Bibles, wish you wouldn't write in the pew Bibles, 
Uh, but sometimes printing off, you know, something of scripture, you know, you can mark stuff up and that helps us to see things that are there. And there's a lot in this passage to kind of notice. And so in verse 6 here, uh, it's the first, notice the word if. And so if you have it and you have a pen, circle that word if in the scripture that's in your, in your bulletin. And then go through in each verse after this, you're going to notice the word if is there as well. And so go through and look for that and circle the word if. So for the rest of this passage, there is an if in each of these verses. So it's saying if this is true, and then it's going to describe what that means. What is, what is the meaning of this? What does this tell us if that is true? And it's going to go back and forth between uh, ideas of, of light and ideas of, of darkness. Okay, ideas of, of truth and ideas of, of error, of lies. And so if you're marking things up too, you could do this as well. Maybe when you see the word light, you could put little light rays around it, okay? And if you see the word darkness, you could like shade it in, okay? Darkness or, or sin. I think it's using these uh, together. So for light, put little, um, yeah, little light rays around it. For sin, you could shade it in. And then if this isn't too much, you can keep this straight. Uh, you see truth and you see lies or a word that's similar to that. Uh, maybe underline truth and put a little zigzag line underneath lies. So you can take a look at this. You know, the, the more that you spend time like looking at scripture rather and engaging with it, the more you get out of that. And this is definitely true with this passage. But if you think about this, if God is light and in him is no darkness at all, the next two verses, um, I'm going to put these on the screen uh, to kind of compare, that one is on the right, one is one left and right. Uh, if we say on one hand, if we say we have fellowship with him, walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But on the other hand, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, because God is in the light, he is light, and we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus. His son cleanses us from all sin. But let's think at verse 6, what this says. That if you're claiming to walk with God, you're claiming to be right with him. I'm good with God, I'm right with God. But you're living a life that is just, you're walking in sin. You're walking in darkness. Now this isn't saying where you struggle with sin uh, just, you know, and you're fighting against it. But you're just, you're in sin. That's uh, what you do. You just, you, you live in it and you're okay with that. And there's people that claim that, um, yeah, I'm tight with God, me and tight, God are good, and they're just, they're just living in unrepentant sin and they don't care about it. And this is saying that's not good news for you. That's saying that you might be claiming that you have fellowship God, with God, but the Bible here, God through this is saying, no, you, you don't. It's saying you lie and you do not practice the truth. I mean, think about this. If God is light, okay, and you're walking in darkness, that has to mean that you are not close to him. Okay, if I had a special suit made, okay, this would be glorious, and it was covered with LED lights, okay, and so I'm up here and I'm just, I'm shining like a disco ball, and I have this, so you can all imagine, uh, and, and, but yet you are walking in darkness, that means that you're probably not near me because I would be lighting you up, okay, so in the same way, if God is light, but you are walking in darkness, then obviously you are not walking with God because you can't be walking with God and be walking in darkness at the same time. Those are incompatible. They just don't go together. It doesn't make sense. 
And so if you're walking in darkness, you're walking in evil, in unrepentant sin, uh, away from God, don't fool yourself to think that everything is okay. Don't think everything is fine. It, it's, uh, since God is light, walking in darkness means that you are not walking with God. It is deception then, deceiving yourself to claim that you can have fellowship with God, be right with him, walk with him, and still walk in darkness. Because God is light and he's not okay with sin. But notice it says if you're walking in, in the light, some other things you're going to realize are true about you, that we have fellowship with one another. I mean, if you are walking in, through a dark alley and other people are walking in a well-lit street, uh, you're not really having fellowship with each other. You know, we might in life be next to each other physically, but in other ways, we're, we're not on the same page. We're not walking in the same area. And so what we're going to see, I just want to point out, we're not talking about any type of perfection here for Christians. We are all sinners and we are all a mess and God is working on us. But this means if you're content just walking in darkness, then it's different than those that God has called into his light and that he's working on and that he's changing, that we're seeking to live for him. So if walking in the light, it means to have fellowship. And one other thing that you realize is true is that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses you from all sin. We see that's the only way that you can actually have restored fellowship with God. Not anything we can do, but it's the blood of Jesus Christ that needs to cleanse us from our sin, that needs to take that away. We also see from this passage that our sin problem is real. It is very real. We're calling this series Real Christianity. Last week was real Jesus. This is real sin. It's acknowledging that the sin problem is not an illusion. It's not something made up. And notice what it says uh, in verse 8. It says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Let me put the other verses up here. Can you see how it goes back and forth? Again, there's if and then it tells what's true about that. If this is the case, then this is what happens. The positive, verse 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then back to the negative. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So we see this, verse 8, means that claiming sinlessness, this is self-deception. That you're deceiving yourself. So people that claim, I'm, I'm a good person, I'm fine, I'm good, they are self-deceived. They are liars lying to themselves. And sometimes we even believe our own lies with this. That we make sure that we don't look at things that show that how much we fall short of God and his glory. Things that are wrong in our hearts. Or we redefine things. We can find somebody else to compare ourselves to to make ourselves look a whole lot better. Because we don't want to think that we are sinners. And so we're self-deceived. Like a, somebody that goes to the doctor and the doctor tells him, you have two weeks to live. And the person just uh, doesn't want to believe that and he lives in denial. And I think most people, especially in, our, in America, we live in denial about the reality of our sin and the seriousness of it. Maybe we talk about mistakes or nobody's perfect, but we don't really think that we are sinners the way that the Bible talks about it. And we see from this, real Christians, we don't claim moral perfection. When we think about what sin really is, 
It's not just breaking some arbitrary rules that are out there. Sin at its core is against God. Sin is rebellion against God. That's what it is. It's claiming that we know what's best, that we are going to take the place of God and do our own thing. Sin is, is evil. And renaming sin, just calling it something else, doesn't help. Yeah, a lot of people, they don't want to use the word sin. They'll talk about something being problematic. Uh, but they won't talk about it being just sin. Think of the way that uh, people sometimes even intentionally rename certain things to make them not sound as bad. Um, prostitutes. Or these are some call them sex care providers. Aborting an unborn baby is women's health care. Even uh, pedophilia, or some are called minor attracted persons. Think of it just adultery that we're used to calling an, incident, an affair or a fling. An affair, that's supposed to be something just nice that you do. Not something that's bad. We call things mistakes, bad choices. Here's the thing, you can change the label on rat poison, but it's still rat poison inside. Changing the label, calling it something different doesn't change what it is. And we can fool ourselves, and sometimes we do a really good job at that, but we cannot fool God. God knows the real deal, and he knows uh, what's in our heart, he knows what we've done, and he knows the, the seriousness of it. And the truth is that ever since Adam and Eve fell into sin, we come into this world as sinners. We come into the world with, that's our default setting, we come into this world with our hearts pointed in the wrong direction, loving the wrong things, loving evil instead of loving what is good. And we live that out every day by, by making our own bad choices, by making our own sins, choosing the wrong thing, rebelling against God. And we do that not just the, the big sins, uh, but even small things. It's a small rebellion against God, like that's a minor thing. It's rebellion against God. And it's not just the external things that we do that other people can see. God knows our hearts. He knows our motives. He knows what's really going inside and how much that's the, the core of who we are. That's the even worse, I think, than what we do in the outside, which is bad, is, is what we do in the inside. And our actions on the outside flow from what's inside, in our heart. There's sin of what we do. There's sin of the things that we don't do, but we should have done. And we examine ourselves, we realize we really fall short in so many ways. We look at God's law. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon once said this. This is a great quote. He says, The idea of having no sin is a delusion. You are altogether deceived if you say so. The truth is not in you. And you have not seen things in the true light. You have shut your eyes to the high requirements of the law. You must be a stranger to your own heart. You must be blind to your own conduct every day. And you must have forgotten to search your thoughts and to weigh your motives, or you would have detected the presence of sin. He who cannot find water in the sea is not more foolish than the man who cannot perceive sin in his members." As the salt flavors every drop of the Atlantic, so does sin affect every atom of our nature. That's the truth. 
we're not just a little bit sinners, and it's not just something on the surface. It's deep to the core. Claiming sinlessness, also verse 10, it calls God a liar. If you're saying, well, I'm not a sin, well, you've just called God a liar. And that's also a pretty big sin right there. I was thinking, well, why is it calling God a liar? Well, part because he has communicated in his word that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans uh, 3.23 and many other places that we are all under sin. We come to this where we're dead in sin, dead in our trespasses. Uh, there's no one righteous, not even one. But also this means that in order to claim that you have not sinned, you have to look at things in our, your life Things that God says, well, yeah, that's sin. And you have to say, no, that's not sin. God, I disagree with you on this one. Think you got it wrong. This thing, you might claim it's sin, the Bible might, and maybe people, but now we know better, I know better. My heart says this is not sin. I claim this is not sin. And so, God, you're wrong on this. God, you're a liar. And think of what sin it is, what evil it is, to say that God is wrong, God is mistaken, that God is calling evil good. That God is calling good evil. Instead of recognizing that's what we're doing. But there's no way that you can claim that you are without sin without doing that, without looking at things that God said is wrong and saying, well, it's fine. It's okay. I pass judgment. I'm the judge. It has been said to wrap yourself up in excuses is to walk naked before the great white throne. To claim and have these excuses, it's not going to stand on the day of judgment. Final point. Sin is real. Point three, our sin can only be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Looking at verse nine again, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I want us to think about that. Think about what this is saying. You know, the word for confess, we think of it as, you know, just uh, saying something to someone else or admitting your, 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 your mistake or your sin. And, and okay, that's how we use it. The word that is, uh, the word for confess in scripture uh, is a Greek word. It's uh, homo legeo. Okay, and you don't have to remember that, but I think it's really interesting because you break apart that word, homo legeo. Uh, homo means same. And we can think of a lot of English words where that means same, you know, as well. And legeo comes from lagas, which is the Greek word for word or speech. And so confess literally means to say the same thing as, to say the same as. So it means to confess your sin means that you are going to say the same thing about your sin that God says about it. You're not going to deny it. You're not going to call him a liar and say, well, you say this, God, but I say this. That we're going to submit ourselves to him. And when God says, this is sin, we say, yeah, that is sin. When God says that we are all sinners, we admit, yes, I look into my life and my heart and I realize I am a sinner. I have a sinful heart. I came into this world with a sinful heart. And even as Christians, we recognize we're still dealing with sin. We're still struggling with sin. So confession, it means to say the same thing as, but this isn't just a matter of saying, 
yep, I did this thing, it, it's sin, I'll admit that, but so what? You know, it also means that we take the same attitude about this sin that God has. But we're not just saying it, but we, we believe it. And that we actually, we have the same uh, attitude about it, and we believe the seriousness of it. So, it, again, it's not just you know, admitting on paper, I'm a sinner, and yep, that thing I did was sin, so what? It's, God, admit this is sin, I am a sinner, and this is, this is bad, this is, is worthy of, of, of condemnation. I ought not to be doing that. I need to turn away from that. And admitting that to the Lord honestly in your heart, that's what I think what it's talking about here is confession. It's uh, kind of another way of saying repentance. But genuinely acknowledging it. We don't want to be the case of uh, a woman who once asked Charles Wesley, uh, the, the evangelist, to pray for her because as she said, quote, I am a great sinner. And she added, I'm a Christian, but sometimes I fail so dreadfully. Please pray for me. And Wesley looked at her rather sternly and replied, yes, madam, I will pray for you, for truly you are a great sinner. And then she answered, what do you mean? I've never done anything very wrong. There's one thing on the surface to claim, yes, I'm a sinner, I get this. Uh, but to really own it, to really believe it, uh, to really acknowledge that. We need to own our sin, not make excuses for it, not deny it. We need to say to the Lord, I am guilty. I am guilty of sin. I am a sinner. And when we see things in our life that are sin, we need to keep confessing those things and acknowledging them before God. But notice what it says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Look at the awesomeness in that, that he is uh, faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To cleanse is to wash something that's dirty. And that's what it means. And nobody wants to be dirty, nobody wants to feel dirty, but the question is, how do you deal with it? It'd be like maybe one of our kids that comes inside from playing and, uh, and they're stinky and they're dirty, but they say, no, I'm not, I'm not, I don't need to take a bath, I don't need to take a shower. And do we do that before the Lord? Or is our response to let ourselves be cleansed? For you to let yourself be cleansed, let yourself be washed. But note here, it's saying, it's he forgives us and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. The message of the Bible isn't you cleanse yourself and then you can come to God. You can't come in here, but you clean up first, then you can come in. Now, Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And if you're here, know that he came to save you. And we're glad that you are here. But the truth is we cannot clean ourselves. No soap can wash away our sins. Sometimes we have a stain and we realize this stain is never going to come out. But that's our sins, all of them, big or small, whatever it is. If it's just our power and we're trying to get it out, we can never get it out. Only the blood of Jesus Christ is enough. And it said that, that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. What can wash away your sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. 
And notice it says, if you look back in verse 7, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Wait, the all sin? Some sins. There's got to be some that, no, all sins. There's no sin that the blood of Christ cannot cleanse, cannot remove the guilt, the defilement from that. Finishing up here. If you look at this, you some know who this is. How many of you have seen the, uh, or watched or heard the musical Hamilton? There's a lot that I have. It's pretty famous, but musical. Um, you can see it on TV. Uh, Alexander Hamilton, that's who this is. Uh, you might be carrying a picture of him in your wallet. Okay, he's on the $10 bill because uh, he's considered one of the, the founding fathers. Uh, there was actually a movement to have him taken off the $10 bill several years ago, but then when the musical Hamilton and the soundtrack from that became such a big deal that they kind of, they shut that down because he became so popular because of that. And the musical is based on a, a biography by Ron Chernow. Um, it's a great biography about his life and it's, it's, it's an amazing life and a lot of ups and downs. Again, he's considered one of the founding fathers. He was never a president but he was one of George Washington's kind of right-hand men during the Revolutionary War, one of his most trusted aides. Uh, in the Revolutionary War, um, when our family, uh, this past summer, we visited uh, the battlefield of Yorktown. Uh, we found the remains of Redoubt 9, where uh, Hamilton led the charge against that uh, British uh, um, redoubt, uh, which was part of, in this battle which ended the war and British General Cornwallis surrendered to George Washington. Hamilton was part of the Congress that drafted the United States Constitution, key person in that, and part of the, what was the Federalist Papers, uh, which were all these papers that were written mostly by him, also by James Madison, John Jay, uh, that talked about the Constitution because it had to be ratified by the states and convincing them that this was a good deal and explaining how this would actually work. And then Hamilton became a key member of the President Washington's administration, serving as the first Secretary of State. And very influential, lots of policies, and he was a force to be reckoned with, and uh, to the irk of a lot of other people. Of course, him and Thomas Jefferson did not get along and were uh, pretty bitter enemies. Hamilton actually made a lot of enemies. Among them was Aaron Burr Jr., who though, um, although he was the grandson of uh, the great American theologian and preacher Jonathan Edwards, Burr was a black sheep, and he was really a, a, a terrible person um, in his life. And he actually became Burr vice president. And during that time, the Hamilton and Burr, things got so heated between them, it uh, resulted in a duel and people would do this back in the day where they would, you know, paces and have pistols. And sometimes it was all for show and they would come up with a, you know, agreement and kind of save face. But other times they shot at each other and uh, fighting with, with pistols. And in this, uh, Burr shot and killed Alexander Hamilton. And that's how he died. Now sometimes you read stuff about these founding fathers and you wonder, are they Christians? Will we see them in heaven? And there's a lot of the Founding Fathers, I wish I could say that I had reason to believe that they were Christians, uh, but there's a lot of them that their theology, they just denied key things, like that Jesus was the Son of God or the Trinity or um, 
I mean, Thomas Jefferson was a theological mess. Uh, but what about Alexander Hamilton? So I read his biography by uh, Ron Chernow, and um, was kind of looking for things like, you know, as a pastor, how would I try to you know look for signs of life, Christian life in this guy, not just claims, but um, what was true about him? Truth is, Hamilton lived a rather scandalous life. He was born out of wedlock in the Isle of Nevis in the West Indies. Now, as a young man, I noticed there was a part of his life where he went through kind of a religious phase and had some religious fervor and would even write hymns uh, as a young man. But when uh, some benefactors kind of noticed his promise and they paid for him to go to, to New York and to school, uh, he seemed to kind of leave that behind. And after that was about his education, then especially about his career uh, in the military and politics, and just an just a incredibly driven man, but it was his career, that that was his focus, and that's what, what drove him, and that's what he cared about. Because sometimes, you know, people go through phases, and they kind of leave things behind. You know, and was it the real deal? And looking at this, it's like he, you know, may have had this whole uh, religious period as a youth, but, um, you know, after that, it meant really nothing to him. And so to me, looking at that, I'm thinking, yeah, I don't think so. At least not then. I don't think it was the real deal. I don't think it really stuck in his life. His wife, Eliza, though, was a very dedicated Christian, very godly woman. And although she was dedicated, Alexander did not attend church regularly or take communion. Uh, like others, he might have fallen under the sway of deism, this view of God that God is just this distant being and we can judge him by reason. Again, his career is what drove him, not the Lord. People also found Hamilton vain, prideful, arrogant. And you read the account and you can see why people would think that. I mean, he was incredibly talented, incredibly driven, but yeah, also had kind of that spirit in him. He was also involved in what's maybe the first major sex scandal in American politics. And that uh, if you've seen the musical, you know it's a big part of it. Um, but he... It was often a flirt with the ladies. And uh, while he was married, and while his wife and his four children uh, went to Albany for the summer uh, for Eliza's health, uh, he stayed behind uh, without her in Philadelphia, which was the capital at that time. And during that time, he allowed himself to um, fall into a sexual relationship with a woman named Mariah Reynolds. And this was a at first, he saw her as this damsel in distress that he was going to uh, help out, and it very quickly led into a sexual relationship with this woman. She was a married woman. He was a married man. And this wasn't just a one-time thing. It wasn't just a one-time fling, but this is something that went on for, for months. In fact, Maria, hus, Mariah's husband, the sleazy James Reynolds, uh, started blackmailing Hamilton about this to give him money, uh, hush money, or else he would expose him. And even when that happened, Hamilton kept paying him off this hush money, but he didn't break up the, the affair that he was having. And even when his wife in the fall moved back, uh, it kept on going. Even when found out that she was pregnant with child, uh, his wife was, he did not break off this affair that he was having. It lasted a um, good part of a year until he finally broke it off. 
and he finally then went later, he went very public with his confession. You can only imagine, you know, what this did to Eliza. You know, her husband, that's one of the most, you know, famous and, uh, and people either loved him or hated him because of his politics. That's how it is back then. That's how it is today. Um, but what this did, you know, to her, with him going public with this, admitting this affair that he had, and people trying to blackmail him through this. Years later, after his oldest son, Philip, um, was tragically killed in a duel. Uh, he saw that happen. His son got hot-headed, got into a duel, and his son was shot and killed. And after this time in his life, it kind of has a, a shift, a change in Hamilton. Uh, that He becomes more uh, introspective and also becomes more interested in the things of the Lord, in, in Scripture and, and even prayer. Uh, but it's difficult to say. Was this him just coping? Was it the real deal? Even during that time, he was never a, a regular churchgoer. But then at 7 o'clock a.m. on July 11th, 1804, at the age of 49, through a series of escalations with this guy Aaron Burr, uh, who was the vice president at the time, Alexander Hamilton was drawn into a duel with him. And the two men planned this out. Their honors had both been violated, things had escalated. Uh, so they had been in New York City. They crossed over the Hudson River into New Jersey because although dueling was still illegal there, it was the more tolerated. The laws in that were uh, less. They met early in the morning, so there weren't people around. They each had a witness, and there was a doctor standing by. And usually uh, the, the partners would go through the series of things where they would discuss, they would try to negotiate, and a lot of times be able to call off the duel and people would kind of save face. Uh, but this thing was obviously going to go the distance. And it went, they lined up, they turned and they shot. And Hamilton threw away his shot. He purposely tried to miss Burr. Um, he felt his honor. He had to be a part of this duel, but he didn't want to actually kill him. So I think the evidence is that he did intentionally try to throw away his shot, try to miss this, uh, but Burr didn't. Burr wanted to kill Alexander Hamilton, and he shot him, and he hit him in the abdomen above his right hip. It went through his abdomen, through his liver, uh, through his diaphragm, and rested against his spine. Now, if you watch the musical, it kind of ends there. But one of the things that it doesn't... Uh, communicate in the musical was one of the things that I found just most uh, just amazing about this and how it ends. And though the musical just glosses over what happens next. Because Hamilton did not die instantly. He fell unconscious and the doctor on the scene cut away his bloody clothes to examine and to treat him. And then they transported him back across the Hudson River uh, where they continued to treat him. They brought him to a a house, a mansion of a, a friend that were there. Hamilton was going in and out of consciousness. The word of the spread, because Hamilton was one of the most famous men, a great man of New York, and surgeons, physicians rushed in. There were even some French ships, and their doctors heard about this, and they came and to see if you know, these specialists could work on Hamilton and to, to save him as they did this throughout the day. They sent for Mrs. Hamilton, and when she finally learned the horrible truth, it said she gave way to frantic grief and troubled spirits. 
As Charnel writes, quote, to comfort her, Hamilton, because he would go in and out of consciousness, to comfort her, Hamilton kept intoning the one refrain he knew would soothe her troubled spirits above all others. Remember, my Eliza, you are a Christian. And then a pastor came to attend to Alexander Hamilton. And the pastor that came to see him as he's on his deathbed, and everyone knew that he was mortally wounded. I mean, they knew he was not going to survive this. You know, at this point, he's going in on the consciousness. Uh, he was paralyzed uh, from the lower half of his body from, from the shot and uh, just bleeding profusely, all these things. The pastor came uh, to see him, and the pastor's uh, name was John M. Mason of the Scotch Presbyterian Church. And he came, and he was actually had been a friend of uh, Hamilton's. So he came, they exchanged uh, looks. He came and he took his hand. And this next part here, this is, this is the amazing part. And I want to read this to you. This is out of Ron Chernow's biography of Alexander Hamilton. Mason, the pastor, tried to console Hamilton by saying that all men had sinned and were equal in the Lord's sight. I perceive it to be so, Hamilton said. I am a sinner. I look to his mercy. Hamilton also stressed his hatred of dueling. I use every expedient to avoid the interview, but I found for some time past that my life must be exposed to that man. I went to the field determined not to take his life. Listen, as Mason told how Christ's blood would wash away his sins, Hamilton grasped his hands, his hand, rolled his eyes heavenward, and exclaimed with fervor, I have a tender reliance on the mercy of the Almighty through the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ. The next day, 31 hours after the duel, Alexander Hamilton died. And as I look at this, God knows the heart, God knows the truth. But as I look at this, and the things that I look for in someone trying to perceive if someone has come to know the Lord, I think we'll see Alexander Hamilton in heaven. Not because of his perfect life. Nope, his life was a mess. And he sinned, and he definitely knew it. Notice what he said at the end. And it seems with absolute sincerity. I am a sinner. I look to his mercy. Then I have a tender reliance on the mercy of the Almighty through the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ. He owned his sin. He didn't make excuses for it. He knew his sin. He confesses. He confessed that he was a sinner. And it wasn't just he confessed it, but he knew what could wash away his sin. And it looks like he believed the truth. And this wasn't just, I believe, in some generic God. But he recognized that this is Jesus Christ the Lord Jesus Christ, who shed his blood that washes away our sin. I don't know what kind of life you have led. I don't know your heart. I do know that you're a sinner, like I am, because we all are. But what I can tell you is that Scripture tells us that it is not being a good person that gets us to heaven. But anyone, if you turn to the Lord through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, 
you will receive forgiveness. If you confess, you're honest with your sin, you own it. You don't make excuses. You stop making excuses. You admit it to the Lord that you are a sinner, worthy of condemnation, worthy of hell. But you realize that Jesus Christ, the God-man, loved you so much that he died on the cross to cleanse you, to take away your sins, to pay for your sin. That salvation is found in him by his grace. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for these truths. You are light, and in you is no darkness at all. But God, there is so much darkness in us. We are sinners, we are dark to the core, Lord. Our only hope is in you. Our only hope is in Jesus Christ. And we thank you that you have provided a way, the way of salvation, Lord. Lord, may you help all of us to admit the the hard truth that we are sinners and to believe and have the same attitude that this is bad, this is damnable, but to come to you trusting that the blood of Christ shed for sinners can wash away any sin. No matter what we have done, no matter what our heart is like, Lord God, that turning to you, we can know because you are not a liar, that you are faithful and true, that having paid the price for our sins, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses all sin. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.